Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for November 2013. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen shocked, shocked to discover gambling going on in this establishment, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen winter soldier, hyphen really couldn't think of anything better than that, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our very special guest... Julia Zamiro. My hyphens include performer, hyphen host, hyphen linguist. Um, but when you said hyphenates and hyphenates, because I don't know which one it is, I actually wanted to say my name is Julia Zamiro Sernson. I just wanted to add a Danish name on there. Just for the well. hell of it? Yeah, just for the hell of it. Because you're obsessed with Danish crime. I am obsessed with Danish crime, but I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> well, we're delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. So Enough Said is Nicole Holofcina's latest film. She recently made Please Give and Friends with Money. She has this habit of making uh, films that on their posters look like the sort of things you would run a million miles to avoid and the films themselves end up being completely brilliant. What do you guys think of Enough Said? Has she continued this trend? I don't know if I'd say brilliant, but it's very, very, very good. I think there are brilliant elements because I'm a fa- I've only seen this film and Please Give, her previous film. Um, and I've really liked them both. And let's just say straight up, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini are fantastic in this film. It's so gorgeous. Mm. So wonderful. Seeing Jimmy made me a bit sad, mm. though. Yeah. It made me really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, such a loss. But, yeah, look, I, th- I thought it was wonderful. It does start to veer towards sentimentality a little bit, which she doesn't normally do she didn't normally hit that button that hard but i find it did manage to undercut it at times um and kind of avoid going full sentiment which was nice but what i really loved about it was there was this sense of melancholy that pervaded all of the characters throughout the whole thing like particularly the older characters and just in terms of this kind of even when they're happy even when they're having you know experiencing wins in their lives there's still this great current of you know, loss, or isn't this isn't going to last, or, you know, what we have, you know, there's always something better on the other side, or, you know, is this, re- is this all there is? Like, there mm. seemed to be this subtext to the whole thing, which I found fascinating. But, yeah, what did you think? How old are you guys? Uh, 32. I'm 38. Yes, I'm 46. And I actually found that film really spoke to me, and I realised I'm now in that age group. Yeah. You know, it was one of those films where you go, you are not playing down to an audience. You're not trying to be a young audience. It, it spoke to me even more than, say, uh, It's Complicated, mm. which is so funny and about, I mean, that's a bit older generation than me, but there was something about the, those two characters trying to find one another and trying to get on. And I thought the comedy was really natural and, and real. Like Julia Louis-Dreyfus really laughs when James Gandolfini yeah. does his kind of double takes and his mm. sort of little reveal jokes that he does. And, and I think you're absolutely right about that melancholy. And I think that's what I related to because I thought, yeah, they're in that time of life where there are things that you will never do. Yeah. That time is finished. How are you going to move on? Mm. Um, and, I mean, I don't have a, a 17-year-old kid who's about to go to college or anything mm. like that, but, yeah, that some things end and how you carry yourself in that new life speaks highly of you and highly of your development if you choose to go that way. And, and also I must say I, I identified, and I think a lot of women will, with her fickle nature where mm. she so likes this guy and because, without giving anything away, 
she finds out through other people that they didn't like him so much. It's really about going, well, are you going to believe in yourself and what you feel rather than what others think all the time? And to still be worrying about that at that age. Yeah. Mm. I mean, exhausting. So, um, And is that thing too, is this constant kind of reinstatement of this theme, like, of not wasting time. I don't have mm. time to waste with this. Like, there's a point which Gandolfini's character is like, oh, you, you know, I've had my heart broken. I'm too old for that shit. Yeah. You know, there's this whole, and you get that, seeping through with, with Julia Dreyfus's feelings about the whole thing. It's like, does she have time to waste on someone who's not just right, mm. who doesn't look the way that she would normally go for, mm. and even though she clearly is crazy about this guy. So there's this constant theme of time creeping up, like, I don't have time for this. Mm. You're right about the sentimentality. There's just one, you know, there's no music in it, and then there's this song, and you go, oh, really, you're going to mm. do that? Or they play this song and she has a few wistful moments or... But, you know, there's a scene where she really embarrasses him at a dinner party and I think it works really well. Oh, wow, yeah, and it's, it's great. real. Mm. Like it's yeah. – she's out of line and you can't believe she's doing it, but she absolutely is mm. because of all sorts of and that's That's notions. why – I mean, I really, really love this film. But I, I love that every emotion, both that you feel and that the characters on screen feel, are all earned. There's not a single false note in the entire film. And – I think that it's so on point. The most impressive thing about it to me is that uh, she has this idea of embracing the new and rejecting the familiar and what happens when something new suddenly becomes too familiar. And there's not a B plot which is wasted. Like, there's every single thing that happens in this film is an exploration of this theme. And there's, there's not a second I would cut out of this film. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's, uh, for me, it's a best film. And and I was a blubbering mess by the end of it. I'm not afraid to say. Really, yeah. you little Aww. sentimental guy. I was in a cinema with a real mix of people, and they all just loved it. I mean, you mm. could really feel. And the ending is really satisfying. Mm. Yeah, the ending's really nice. James Gandolfini, yeah. though, it was really heartbreaking because oh, he was so yeah. soft and funny and lovable and 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 strong in yeah. this film too. Like he's no wimp, you know. No, he's no, really no, strong really. and and yeah, really sad. Yeah. Really, a really sad. But what, a, but what a great film for him to go out mm. on. I like hope that that's sort of... the last one, isn't it? There's no other, there's I, no, I like, there's, in there's almost like always that. another one in the pipeline yeah. where you go, like, there's a Fife Goes West or there's yeah. a, you know, there's <laughs> something, Jimmy Stewart. there's a Transformers, you know, there's always <laughs> oh, something God. that kind of mars that last, what was that great actor's last film? Oh, it was that. That one. The, yeah. But we'll accept, or let, yeah. let's pretend yeah. that Gandalfinger's yeah. last film Because it would be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way for Jimmy Stewart's career to end. So awkwardly segueing from that to uh, Ridley Scott's The Counselor, or Cormac McCarthy's The Counselor, Mm. or um, Cameron Diaz's The Counselor. Cameron Diaz's The Counselor. Yeah, this uh, the film which is already. You know, I, I I'm almost impressed by the way that a film in this. We were talking before the show about how nothing really catches in culture because there's so much entertainment out there. Nothing really ingrains itself these days. That something has to be special for it to really for everyone to know what that one thing is. And the council has already got that. You know, that's the Cameron Diaz has sex with a film, with a car film. A car film. With a car film. Cameron Diaz has sex with a car film. Film. Oh, Sorry. I see. I'm with you. I'm going, what's yeah, a car yeah, film? Yeah, yeah, same. I'm like, are you having a stroke? What's going on over there? Car film. Car film. <laughs> what part of the car? 
Because the, the I will wind, say the, I'm, wind, I'm not the windshield, the like the yeah. top of the windshield. Oh, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I've not seen it, yeah, and I would see Michael spread. Fassbender in anything. Oh, yes. yeah. Although I do prefer it when he's speaking German and English and anything else he wants yeah. to speak. But um, <laughs> in French, I think he does too. But um, it's it's the sort of film that doesn't interest me in the slightest to go. Mm. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it's all of... the things in it. Ridley Scott, or you no. It's okay. everything on paper sort of works. Like you look at it and you go, great cast. Ridley Scott has directed great films in the past, and Cormac McCarthy is mm. a great writer. And it's a crime film where people actually sit around talking for most of it, which is the sort of thing I love. Um, and yet, it just doesn't hang together. Doesn't yeah, it's work. interesting, isn't it? It's 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 a film that honestly, with every I. I, I, I find I see like a film like this once or twice a year. Uh, I remember Hancock was a film like this as well. Mm. It's one of those films where for every scene I love, there's a scene I hate in equal measure. <laughs> and so you're constantly on this roller coaster ride. It's like that's brilliant, that's awful, that's brilliant, that's awful. And like it's there are times the Cormac McCarthy dialogue is really split between sounding beautiful and elegant and a real you know kind of existential rumination on things and then the next line would just sound like somebody swallowed a Cormac McCarthy book and regurgitated it um so it's this weird kind of like most of the actors are good I mean Cameron Diaz more power to you for doing some of that stuff Mm. but she just I don't know it's just a bit it's one of these performances where she's really pouring it on, and it's just it just seems false to me. See, I think they should have built this. You know, it's Cameron Diaz and Penelope Cruz. This is the Vanilla Sky uh, reunion <laughs> that we needed. Yeah, to yeah have. And absolutely. The film's just as successful. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's just. Did you know what was going on, by the way? Did you have any idea what was happening? Oh, I, I did. Yeah. I'm, I'm, af- I'm almost afraid to admit this because if you say, "Oh, that film made no sense," you know, you couldn't possibly follow it. All you're basically saying is. I didn't understand it. So I'm just going to come out and say, I didn't understand it. And it got to a point where it was about half an hour in and suddenly there's danger happening. I'm going, I literally have no idea why these people want to kill these other people. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it might just be me though, apparently. Did you get it at the end? I did. Look, I I have to say I got the plot. I didn't get some of the conversations. There is a phone call Ruben Blades' character has with... with, um, um, Fassbender near the end of the movie, which is downright gobbledygook. Like, it's just like, you created this reality and this reality only exists in this reality and now this reality and brings it back to the Vanilla Sky thing. It yeah, sounded like it? a conversation that Noah Taylor has with Tom Cruise. Well, Eyes Wide Shut, there are a few of those conversations <laughs> like that in that you're going, where, where are we now? Oh, what? what are we talking about now? Oh, I don't know. Lost. Lost. Oh, they're having an orgy. There you go. <laughs> back. Well, that's Kubrick, so we talk about it in hushed tones. Exactly. Hushed tones. But, yeah. I mean, an orgy, that brings everyone back to oh, the yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, crashing back down to earth. But... I'll say this about the counselor. It looks gorgeous. It is beautifully shot. And, you know, it's fun. It's never not fun watching all those actors on screen. Uh, but I would dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say this is the one instance in which it's not fun watching those actors on screen. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, like, I, I had a schizophrenic time with this. Do they look uncomfortable? That's I always. That's my kind of um, barometer. Yeah, mm. like if if you can see actors squirming or just really phoning it in, or do they look um, confused? I, I I got the impression, and of course this is me projecting my own emotions onto them, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're allowed to. Thank you. Um, I got the impression that they were all sitting there doing the lines of dialogue, and no one knew what they were doing, but no one wanted to admit it because Cormac McCarthy is a great writer, and he wrote No Country for Old Men, which everyone loves. Uh, this is probably another No Country for Old Men. No one right. really understood that, or we didn't understand <laughs> that. So, so, but that was everyone loved that. So we're probably doing one of those again. 
Does Cor- <laughs> do you think Cormac would be happy with the final result? I guess so. It. It'll sell books. Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh it's... no, this is an original screenplay. Yeah. Oh, excuse you. This right. is uh, this is like when uh, when Grisham did the Rainmaker, or you know those oh. those instances where uh, an author comes out and goes doing mm. a film. Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. There wow. you go. Everyone remembers that. Yeah. Um, Who's Stephen King? There was. <laughs> <laughs> I I will give it points for having a bit of a downer ending. I quite like that. Mm. It didn't compromise on that front, which I thought was cool. I love the fact there were just random cameos in the film, like even down to like, well, not in a Seth MacFarlane type way, but in a way that all the small roles are played by quite Can you give well us an known example? people, like um, Goran Viznich from ER turns up towards the end. He's nice. Uh, Dean yeah, Morris like from Breaking Bad Taught, has a conversation with John Leguizamo, and you get the impression they're in a much more interesting film than the one you're watching. <laughs> yeah, see, I can't stand that stuff. I reckon cameo, personality cameos, all of that—you cannot get into the story. No. It's impossible. It and pulls you out, does it? it? Completely. And I, I just think it's just famous friends and famous actors and famous people doing famous stuff together. And maybe there's an audience that loves that sort of thing, but I think I would have walked out. Except no. for Michael Fassbender, I've got to be honest. Yeah. God, he's divine. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Sorry. And you'd have to wait for Goran Viznich because he's literally he's in the last five minutes. He's lovely. He's I'd great. fast forward it. I'd wait till it got home, fast forward <laughs> You haven't seen The Fifth Estate, have you? No. You haven't seen The Fifth Estate? I, I have seen The Fifth Estate. And this is one of those times where I'm going to be completely unrepresentative of everyone else's thinking because I loved this film and I don't even really know anyone else who even liked it. Isn't, wow. it a, isn't it a wine? It's Fifth Estate? Yeah. <laughs> isn't it a wine called Fifth Estate? It's What's the, it about? Maybe that's what I like. Cumbersange is you, pretty much the way. It's, <laughs> it's Benedict Cumberbatch as Julian Assange. Oh, it's that? Yeah, it's that. Cumbersange. That's the one. Oh. Tune in, Julia. Right, okay. <laughs> and, so, and so a lot of people didn't like it and you're I, saying you loved it. Yeah, I kind of have to, I kind of have to qualify Jesus, this. not even Julian Assange likes it. Oh, yeah. Well, well, kill surprise. Um, <laughs> no, no, he... Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. Yeah, I have to be careful because I can't recommend it to anyone because I literally don't know anyone else who has liked it at all. So I'm but not recommending like it. That? But here's why I loved it: um, <laughs> is that it's uh, well, for a start, Cumberbatch is extraordinary in it. I've always thought he had this great presence, and I've always loved watching him. But I didn't know he was versatile because he's so striking and unique. I didn't know he could adapt himself, and he not only gets the voice exactly right, and probably the best. Australian accent I've ever heard a non-Australian do. But he also gets Assange's voice perfectly right, but also the physicality. If you've ever seen Assange interviewed, the way he moves, Cumberbatch just embodies that. It's one of the most extraordinary... Um, it, it, it goes beyond mimicry. It's just he inhabits him completely, mm. which is impressive in itself. But also the film um, I, I really like because it, it keeps walking that line between... It's basically an examination of not just his character, but also of the idea... Uh, this concept of, of should information be free? And it shows you the best side of that and it shows you the worst side of that. And it comes close to deifying Assange and then it comes close to demonising him. And it shows you both sides of everything. And I think it's very, very fair and it's very, very interesting in, in, in the way it explores it. And it even challenges you on your on the film itself. It even says, look... All information is, is tainted, and this film is just one person's opinion. And, and there, of course, you know, Bill Condon directed, and he did Gods and Monsters, and he loves doing that sort of visual, metaphorical representation of what the characters are going through. And there's this 
uh, and WikiLeaks, the website, has a physical representation. It's this office filled with desks, and there's sand on the bottom, and there's a sky above. And right. when great. It's, yeah, I think it's fantastic, and I, I have clearly seen a different film. And these are the, yeah, things I've heard other people shit-canning. Yeah. yeah. But see, I'd now, after your description of his portrayal of Assange, I'd, I'd almost watch it just for that, because mm. I'm a bit of a sucker for a good... You know, character bit of good character work. Yeah, yeah. And because Cumber, you're right, Cumberbatch is kind of he's very what a strange guy. Like he can be kind of anything. You know, mm. he and as you say, you don't know he's versatile yet. And and mm. I first saw him in Atonement, I think. Um, That's right. Yeah. And um, and he was such a great baddie in that. Yeah. And so English, and yet we've seen him do other things where he's a lot more relaxed, a lot looser. And then when you see him talk as himself, sound Graham Norton or whatever, mm. he's still kind of reserved. So to see him be someone like Assange, which is quite different again, mm. I'd watch it just for that. Yes, yeah. I wouldn't mind the sky and the sand and the. Water. <laughs> You'd forgive it for yeah. a good. Uh, yeah, honestly, I mean, Bill Condon aside, I'm not a great fan of, but it does sound fascinating. So our topic this month, I think, for our middle segment, I think is best described by Lee, uh, which is... Why can't writers write writers writing? There it is. Do you know what I mean? Sounds like a song. <laughs> yeah. Why so can't writers write writers writing? Yeah. So do you want to explain what I mean by that? Please do. All right. So I've noticed a trend whenever uh, there's a film, a writer is a character in a film and they have to deliver their prose and prove why... This character is the greatest writer of their generation. Mm. And the prose is uniformly terrible. <laughs> and you're like, no one would ever buy this book or book of poetry or whatever the hell you're selling. If writers know anything, if screenwriters know anything, it's writing. That should, at base minimum, that should be the one thing they know about. And yet when they're writing about writers, they can't write the writing well. They get all self-conscious. Maybe. Do you, th- do you think it's because most screenwriters aren't great writers? <laughs> yes. And, and, that, and that they quote, it's like kind of like, this is what I think is great writing and it's not, and the great writing is actually really difficult? Yep. Yep, I think it kind of shows that screenwriters <laughs> don't know squad. Because we're talking about films like... Um, yeah, when I was, yeah. As abominable as the words... With, the the with words Bradley is the Cooper. absolute nadir of this. This is like, this is, did you see it? It was a film that came out last year. No, I'm loving it though. Oh my god, Bradley Cooper as a oh. who we love normally. Of course. Oh, it's oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those films filled with great casts in a terrible film, and he uh, he can't write well, and then steals a manuscript or finds a manuscript without an, a writer, and it turns out to be Jeremy Irons wrote it, and oh, not not the Jeremy Irons, like he, he's playing a character. Easy. It would be an amazing twist if Jeremy Irons had actually written it, wouldn't it? As himself. But um, it's it's a film filled with like um, this this ideal, ridiculous ideal of what a writer is like. They sit in a Paris loft with wine and coffee and work into the night on a typewriter. I think wow. that's called, a laptop. I think that's called a garret, Lee. Yeah. A garret. A garret. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, well, and, it's actually called an atelier. But let there me not be. Oh, yeah, I do oh, have yeah. another language up my clacker. Yeah, so <laughs> this, uh, but this, you like, might want to see a proctologist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a gynecologist. Yeah. <laughs> but, this, um, uh, this faux bohemianism that seems to whenever mm. writers write about writers, they always like suddenly have to put them in. They always have to have typewriters because that's romantic, and they yeah. have to have bottles of wine, and they have to be in France, always France. And um, the other examples, like I, I was thinking of this when we were talking about Rob Reiner last month and Alex and Emma oh, in particular, God. which was just <laughs> this. I know it was meant to be a comedy, but um, 
Why, yeah. why do we need to talk about this? I know, again? we shouldn't bring it up it's again. It's like Luke Wilson playing an author who just can't <laughs> string a sentence together. But that's not really the plot, because we're meant to think he can. Mm. Uh, Stranger <laughs> Than Fiction, Ruby Sparks, Smart People. There's a, there's a narrow subgenre of films about fictitious writers, I should point out. Mm. Because there are a lot of films about, you know, when like I loved Howl. I know that wasn't particularly well received, but Howl about, uh, with Alan Ginsberg and Franco performing the poem mm. Howl. And that's really well done, and that works but because that's real, and that's a, that's a mm. real writer. But specifically, films about fictitious writers who then uh, perform their prose on the screen. What about that film with Emma Thompson, and she's a writer? Oh, is that Stranger Than Fiction? That, yeah. See, I love that. I I love, 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 loved it. <laughs> did, you, did you love it? I loved it. Okay. I, I didn't, but I, I also felt that, um, for me, one of the most... Uh, one of the reasons I didn't like it is 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 the moment when um, Dustin Hoffman's character says to it to, says to her, "This could have been your masterpiece." And I was looking at it, kind of, I, don't, I don't see anything about the story she was telling that that says anything. Remotely. Oh, you've got to suspend your disbelief. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being met halfway. Well, maybe it's impossible. I mean, you know, maybe it's impossible to do that because, I mean, I was saying, did you mean like Ernest Hemingway in Midnight in Paris kind mm. of thing? You go, you're not existing writers, pretend writers. What about adaptation? But see, adaptation gets away with it because Donald Kaufman's a hack and he's most of the writing ah, we hear. Yeah, that's Cause, true. Because yeah. Charlie can never yeah. get anything down. He's a and, hack. Yeah, yeah and yeah. doesn't... So Charlie's trying to be great and is kind of struggling with his own head. And then the writing we do hear most of, like the story of the three, like the way the entire third act goes, mm. is all Donald, who is a hack. Mm. So that works really well. And likewise, uh, Manhattan... Uh, which opens with that great, you know, Woody Allen monologue where he's like trying to write the first sentence of his oh, book. So good. And it's hilarious, but it's also funny because it's revealing something about his character and it's comedy and comedy, you know, he can do comedy, he can do, you know, he's a stand-up comic, so he knows how to do funny lines, but he's also showing that he's trying to portray himself in a certain way. Mm. And so it's great writing, but it also has a function. And so I think Manhattan gets away with it. Honestly, the only outside of like Manhattan and adaptation... The only example I could think of where somebody says, this is great writing, and then it's great writing, isn't even in film. It's during the Sorkin years of The West Wing. And when, and it's extraordinary, because when they say, this person has to give an amazing speech which will not blow the doors off the building, he actually follows through. Mm. And it's the only example I can think of. But, see, I would counter that that is playwriting. That's, mm. that's speechifying. It's not mm. prose. Sure. It's, I can accept and that. And Sorkin understands the rhythm of language and he understands how to construct a speech and how to build and how to knock, how to blow the doors off. Um, Alan and, and then root that in character. Like, yeah, he's not... It's, it's not prose. I, I completely accept that, which is just because it supports my thesis <laughs> that we can't do this. Alan Bennett's The History Boys... His character, uh, Hector, fantastic character, talks about how much he hates it. He decries people who say they love words because it's this sort of, it's this reductive, uh, trite, superficial way of appreciating literature. When, whenever someone tells you they love words, turn around and run in the other direction. <laughs> and I love that the worst example of this, this thing we're talking about is a film called The Words. <laughs> it just... It the just... Words. But prose is meant to be read, and I think when you... He things meant to be read are different to things that need to be said, and so when you read something out loud... And that's not to say you can't read a, you know, a novel out loud, and you know, which is obviously what you did in the 18th century because there was no telly, but you might read and go, oh, listen to this... But maybe it's something about that. It's not being, you know, you could take any great prose and it wouldn't sound good 
read out loud, but yeah. I think I think when you when you're putting a writer in a garret with coffee and wine and doing all that, but it's like that in words and music, the Hugh Grant. Ah, uh, the songwriting. Oh, the film. songwriting one. Yeah, yeah. So at one point you have to you have to go with the idea that the song they're about to write together is going to be this amazing hit, and it better be good because you're going to hear it fifteen times in the thing. Yeah. Well, is that a good song? By the end, you're going, yeah, it's catchy. I get it, I suppose, mm. you know. But we all have to kind of agree that that song is great. But that's that happens that a lot. Thing you do. But that thing you oh, do. Oh, yeah. different. Yes. Yeah. No, okay. that works totally. Yeah, totally that works. works. So it can Love be done. Song. It can be done. And what they do with that, I've got the soundtrack. The great thing about that <laughs> is that they only play snippets of it, and you never get a full version mm. of it till a good way in. Mm. But it's so addictive. Yeah, yeah. You just want to hear more of it. Oh, it's, every time. Yeah. And I the thing is, I've, I've seen, I've, I've seen authors like. Uh, I love that movie. Um, yeah, I love that movie. Let's watch it now. <laughs> I've seen authors, authors like Franz and, and uh, Jonathan Safran Foer perform their own work on stage, and it's great mm. because and they're reading prose, and even though you know it's meant to be written rather than performed, it still sounds yeah. great. Yeah. And I, I contrast that to okay, I, I was talking about Hal before, and Ginsburg uh, Franco playing Ginsburg performing Hal sounds great in that film, and then I look at um, Dennis Quaid in the words. Dennis, Dennis Quaid performs his work and it's meant to be this thing that everyone oh, applauds and goes, this is fantastic, and it's like a two-year-old wrote it. <laughs> um, but we know it can be done. I, yeah, I say like, the thing being read out, you can make a hash of that too. Like Tobey Maguire reading Fitzgerald's prose in Great Gatsby. Ah, oh, oh, that's right. a good no point. Good. That's no a good. very good point. That was terrible. I didn't like that film at all, but we're not talking about that great <laughs> But that is a good point because it shows that that was great writing and when performed. Yeah. Not great. But it wasn't performed so much as it was a character narrating. Is that the same thing mm. or is that a different mm. thing? Is that different enough to qualify? Again, but it's that thing of read, like prose, like you were saying, Julia, about prose is meant to be read. It's not necessarily meant to be said. Mm. And it definitely comes out on the arse end of that equation. It's like when you write something funny to be read for a paper or whatever and then you have to say it out loud or perform it. You have to fundamentally change it to make it more accessible and mm. more in the moment and more... Conversational. You know, yeah, conversation yeah. and connecting with people. Otherwise, it's just a speech. Yeah. And, you know, how do you make a great speech come alive? You go off book and you sort of start to connect with people and don't mm. rely on an auto cue, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. I, I really do think the secret is you don't if, – if your writer's a genius and it's not a writer we know or like it's not a published writer, then don't read out their prose. Yeah, just, read out – yeah. Just let, let everyone know – like just the audience will do the work for you. They'll yeah. believe they're a genius. Mm. Um, whereas you can get away with the adaptation Manhattan method of writing hackily because then that's pretty funny. Mm. But here's the thing. <laughs> I love words. Like, I just – I love them. This is me Do running you love away. Words? I I'm going to get another wine. <laughs> so, Julia, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. I will. Um, look, Ang Lee is who I've chosen, mainly because um, I just really connected with his work, strangely, firstly, through Sense and Sensibility, because I'm a huge Emma Thompson fan. And. Uh, read this great article where she said when she first found out who they were thinking of getting to direct her film, a Jane Austen book, she thought, what in the world would this Chinese, this guy from Taiwan know about Austen? And then, of course, then she sees Eat Man, Drink Woman and The Wedding Banquet and 
And certainly eat, drink, eat, drink, man, woman's about three sisters and their father and trying to work stuff out. And all of a sudden the things fall into place. So as I watched that film, I was thinking about him and thinking about this Chinese man in all these little quaint English locations. And then I think it was just following him, as you do with the director when you start to like them and you see what they do, that you start to fall in love a little bit and you think Ice Storm, you get great mm, performances yeah. out of that. And then, and that's an English-speaking world, an American world, which he knows a little bit because he, he did live there um, as a young man. But then Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I had never seen much Chinese film and I'd not seen any kind of martial arty kind of stuff right. and I know it's a whole genre I wasn't particularly into it because it's not my thing and sort of fell for that and fell for the beauty of it and I think Ang sprang to mind because he's sort of directed in two language in well two languages as far as I know yeah in, in mm -hmm. two worlds and um east west thing is is kind of interesting to kind of, of look at and what's sort of been successful and not been successful and it's weird because he's as bifurcated as his career because he spent as much time if not more so in new york mm. than taiwan mm. well, he, well he actually said he's never felt at home because he was born in taiwan grew up in china then went back to Taiwan, so he felt out of place in both places. Then went to America, felt out of place there, and then when he went back home, felt out of place because he was now an American. So he says he's never felt at home anywhere. He's always felt like an outsider. Yeah, I've got that quote too, and yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, like anything, kids that are outsiders I think end up being great storytellers and end up in the arts sometimes. You know, there's no better way to see the world if you're going to tell a story about the world, which is to be the watcher. Mm. And also when you're the outsider, you're constantly trying to figure out how do I get other people to like me and join me so you act like them or you change your behavior or you try and copy and so you literally put yourself in someone else's shoes and I think that's a very popular migrant story it's a common migrant story to mm. immigrant story and you observe their behavior as well yeah so. yeah and of course as a, as a director and an actor that's what you, you that's what you that's the keenest sense I think you need to have because he studied at NYU and was mm. actually, actually worked on Spike Lee's student film. He was like yeah. the first AD on Spike, Spike Lee's and film. Ang Lee. Not brothers, but went... <laughs> <laughs> How's that? The Lee brothers. Or, or, or Mike Lee, I think. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, no, Spike and Ang Lee worked together on, on student films, mm. which is extraordinary. I know, um, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Emma Thompson keeps this fantastic diary through mm. Sense and Sensibility. Because she's hilarious and funny and it's, you know, she's published it and it's a fun read or whatever. But she tells this great story about the first day of, sh uh, of shooting where he decides to do a Buddha ceremony and before the filming starts. So it's a, it's a big luck ceremony and it's a Buddhist ritual that Aang observes at the beginning of every film. He'd set up a trestle table with large bowls of rice, two gongs, incense sticks, oranges for luck and happiness, apples for safe, smooth shooting, a bouquet of large red petal flowers for success and an incongruous pineapple for prosperity. Everyone lit a stick of incense, bowed in unison to the four corners of the compass and offered a prayer to the god of their choice. The camera was brought in on the dolly and it was, uh, it was there for a blessing and a few feet of film were rolled. Then Ang struck the gongs and everyone cheered and planted incense sticks in the rice bowls. Then Emma Thompson says, I cried. And then Al Watson, <laughs> one of the electricians, comes up to Ang and says, 
is this going to happen every day, Gav? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, so nervous that there's going to be this 20-minute thing happening yeah. every morning at 6 a.m. <laughs> but it's lovely that he brings this sense of ritual. Mm. And I think often directors don't do that enough. It's not enough just to have a drink with people or to go, hi, let's sit around the table and do the talk like they do in The Tall Guy where everyone goes around and says who they are and <laughs> the thing. You know, he has this ritual and this ceremony to kind of say, well... This thing's starting and luck is so important and good fortune so important. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Mm. And there's a certain amount of ritual that is a theme within a number of his films as well, whether that ritual is working for the characters or not. Yeah. From, I guess, his first film, Pushing Hands. Well, in... yeah, it's, it's what's known as the Father Knows Best trilogy. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and, and, I, and I suppose this is a weird thing to be impressed by, but the fact that his first four films were made eat one a year, that he was, actually, he was able to keep that yeah, uh, consistently up. But filmmaker. Um, yeah, Pushing Hands in 1992, The Wedding Banquet in 1993, and Eat Drink Man Woburn in 1994. And all about sort of domineering fathers, I guess, in a sense, who, who want different to what their children want. And this whole East meets West clash in, a lot, in most of those and films. And some taboo love affairs going on mm-hmm. as well. The, yeah. the, the gay couple in, in Wedding in Banquet, wedding banquet yeah. the father and the daughter of the woman that's trying to crack onto him and eat drink man yeah. woman. Yeah. Probably not as prevalent in Pushing Hands, but yeah. I was a bit distracted in Eat Drink Man Woman because uh, it's it's basically about a a father with three daughters, and I spent the whole film uh, trying to force a King Lear interpretation that just wasn't there. Oh, um, you're funny! So I was that like, is, it's got to be there. Where is it? That's adorable. <laughs> well, I tried to. I mean, I think I think Wedding Banquet starts off a bit clunkily, like the first sort of half hour. Even the way it's shot is really kind of. I don't know, pedestrian. It's sort of these wide shots where people sort of wander in and out and just stay. But then it kind of gets a bit more interesting and stuff sort of happens. But I think by Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, he's that opening sequence of Mm. just the dad cooking. And this is way before all this food porn stuff happening now. That guy's actually cooking real stuff Mm. and we see guts and we see mess and we see... You know, great cuts from ridiculous you know, precision. Yeah, mm. ridiculous precision. Yeah. But you know, but that's what we all fetishize now. Mm. The incredible position of precision. Well, not really a master chef because they give them two hours to cook four hours worth of food. But that's what we admire. That kind of what they do. And mm. he's just preparing this one meal for his three daughters, and it's a beautiful kind of setup. Mm. Now, my dad had restaurants and was a, a chef. So as the daughter of someone who's worked with food, I sort of fell in love with that. And, and even though our relationship is completely different, it was a really powerful metaphor for me. And I loved it. And I loved that the three girls are so different. Mm. I kept trying to force a check off three sisters. Ah. Really on it. So you've done your King Lear <laughs> We all bring our literary baggage. So. <laughs> but, but, but also, I, I reckon Ang's got that in the back of his head too, I'm mm. sure, you know, that that stuff's in there. But but just great things from cutting from the daughter having sex with someone to the dad blowing into the duck yeah. to make fill it with air. You know, these great little yeah. kind of juxtapositions. And, and what I love is that it just gets on with it. There's no over-explaining. It's really efficient filmmaking. Mm. Cut, 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 cut. Almost like the cooking mm. of going, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. You sort of have to figure stuff out for yourself. You're not spoon-fed the whole thing. Mm. I'm always surprised uh, with the, guy, the actor that plays the dad. I find him so emotional and so beautiful in this mm. film and I don't expect it. He's the same guy across all three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he yeah. is. He loves working. He was the main guy. And I, I, 
I didn't pick him in the wedding banquet. Yeah. Like, it's like, didn't he? Because he's yeah. so different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas in the third film, it's like, isn't that the guy from the first? And mm. then it's like, oh, shit, he's in the second as well. And it's mm. the same woman, too, playing oh, wow. the mother, the, the, right. the girlfriend oh, and right. the wife. And she's so great in the wedding banquet and she's so annoying in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, one of the clim- the big climax of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman where we all think he's going to propose yeah. to the mum mm. and he proposes to the daughter and she has this great fainting fit and... It's just everyone's dirt's on the table mm. and people fighting for what they want. I, I just love it's, that film. And it's about food. <laughs> I just love that it's about food. See, I've got to say, I, felt, I didn't feel the pedestrian thing with Wedding Banquet. The Wedding Banquet was by far my favourite of these first three films. Oh, I right. thought it was hilarious. I just really adored it. Whereas Pushing Hands, I really felt that with. Pushing Hands mm. felt like this is a film student. Still learning yeah. how to tell a feature. It was like didn't quite know when to get in and out of scenes. Mm. It's all a bit clunky. There's some the performances are kind of variable. There's some interesting themes here, but as a filmmaker, it's he's really green. Mm. And then I thought the wedding banquet because I was hooked pretty quickly into that. I was just like, yeah, this is this is much better. Mm. And I guess I wasn't as connected to the story of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, but I do appreciate that. Mm. He, he again, he, his technique continued to evolve. Mm. It certainly felt like his most accomplished because there was a, a bit of dodgy acting, in particular in the first two films, and there was a bit. I agree, a yeah. little bit, yeah. And then suddenly, like eat, by eat, drink, man, woman, the cinematography, the performances, like everything's just been been tightened a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely an evolution in his craft. Mm. From from one film to the next, you can see why they picked him for Sense and Sensibility. Like, yeah, I mean, Emma Thompson was right. It's a weird choice until you actually look at his films yeah. and you go, mm. yeah, he's he's the right person. This Taiwanese-born director who studied in New York is the right person to bring this quaint English tale to life. Yeah. Once I saw Sense and Sensibility, and then Ice Storm, he really likes to work with actors on relationships because mm. those films are actually about talking. Yeah, mm. there's a lot of talking. And uh, little sort of transitions of status within each scene, and it's um, how you do, how are you going to cover that, and how are you going to do that. And in Sense and Sensibility, there's a point where where Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant are working on a scene together, and they're telling Ang what they'd like to do. And at first, he's quite shocked because he says in Taiwan. No one tells the director what to do. Didn't he try to hand out notes to them or something? Yeah, he and does. Hugh Grant was like, "No, I'm good. Yeah, I think I'm, good. I'm, I'm fine. I got this." You know, and so. <laughs> It takes a while to figure out and there's a bit of tension and then after a while that he starts to understand, well, that's how things are done here mm. and not to take offence. Right. Yeah. Um, and Emma and Hugh are so relaxed in what they can do, they didn't think... Anyway, so it's interesting. Within that, you're having to find an understanding in your, in your cultural mm. identities already. Mm. It must be funny seeing him amongst, like I said, you know, this rural Englishness yeah. and apparently he's always got his hand, he's always got his, his hand on his cheeks sort of sitting there looking at what's going on and... Like it never comes off, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, we'll just say things like, you know, be funnier or be less bad or, you know, to, 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 to Hugh or to Emma and they're like, mm, thanks for that, that's quite good. Act better. But he's had know? no problem directing language. Which no. is, there are some foreign filmmakers that do struggle with that when they come to direct films in Hollywood or the UK. Mm. They struggle with, with the translation of the English language. But he's never, he just dove right in. Mm. And, and Sense of Sensibility and Ice Storm are, both incredibly elegant in that regard. Yeah, Ice Storm yeah. was the first one of his I saw, and it, it just floored me. It was around the time I was sort of, I realised film was what I wanted to do, and I was sort of really getting into it. And just seeing the Ice Storm and knowing that there was, it was sort of the first time outside of a media class or a film class that I'd seen the subtext on my own, and I'd understood everything that wasn't being said. Mm. 
and what everything meant. And I remember just being completely floored by this film. And it was the first time I'd heard Ang Lee's name. And I never forgot. Every time I heard it after that, it was always Ice Storm Director. That was the mm. first thing I thought mm. of. And again, like sort of out of his comfort zone of being sort of in this, what is it, 1970s yeah. uh, Americana. But it's so, it feels so European though, that film. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it does. It feels like Bergman. That's why ah. it was so beautifully, strangely surprising and amazing. Like, you don't know. I mean, it's it's wonderful. Mm. So, you know, guess which film he saw, Ang Lee saw, that made him realise he wanted to be a filmmaker? What was that? Bergman's The Virgin Spring. Mm. Wow. That was the film he saw and went, okay, this is what I'm doing. Shit. Well, yeah, well, he nails the Bergman thing with the ice storm. Mm. He's not afraid to be kind of goofily funny either. There's some really odd stuff going on mm. in some of those Taiwanese films. And then... <laughs> and then um, and Sense and Sensibility, like, because you've, you've got Emma Thompson's natural humour in the screenplay and he's not afraid to let that be funny as well. Yeah. But there's some really interesting kind of tracking shots in Sense and Sensibility where you feel the isolation of mm. the girls and where they live, where they leave them in a room and just go back and you think, you will be an old maid if you don't do something really fast. Yeah. But there's almost an, a, a mirror scene in Eat, um, Eat, Drink, Main Woman where two of the sisters are washing up and she says, I don't know anything about you. And at one point she says, what do you know of my heart? You know nothing of my heart. Mm. And there's a scene in Sense and Sensibility where she says, Marianne, what do you know of my heart? You know nothing yeah. of my heart. And I loved watching um, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman again just a couple of weeks ago for this and going, that's the same moment as... <laughs> So yeah, I think he. I think he's a softy, but yeah, yet his very stuff is. So. But it's not sent. I, I don't think it's sentimental. There's a lot of unsentimentality oh, in yeah. in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. I think the way Emma Thompson writes, she's always, yeah. Yeah. and it's Austin. You know, she's removed from the what's going on, and the whole film is about a girl who expresses a lot of emotion versus a sister who doesn't express a lot of emotion. So. Yeah, I mean the Ice Storm cast is just phenomenal. The scenes mm. between the children mm. exploring their sexuality. Mm. Little beads of sweat on their upper lip, and the closeness and and the horror and the realness of the boy, the boy that's in Little Man Tate. I forget his name. Yeah, Adam Han Bird, who disappeared. Yeah, well, I hope he's having a great life and getting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I hope yeah. he's not feeling like, oh, I'm never going to act again, or uh. him being drawn to being with this girl, with Christina Ricci in the bathroom, and then freaking out. Yeah, and the awkwardness of that, and her being so cool in her. You know, she's so kind of together about it. There's a real space. They leave a lot of space for things to happen and silence and things to happen mm. in the silence. And it's really good movie making because it's not always about talking. Yeah. The adults stop talking yeah. and the kids just do. And the Nixon mask, that weird bit oh, where they, yeah. they're making out with the Nixon mask. I mean, it's those weird things that kids <laughs> do. Yeah, what another world. That and scene after after the bathroom when she uh, when Sigourney Weaver sort of talks to her and you realise she you realise she's not very good at this mothering thing <laughs> and she starts talking to her about the kids in where, where did you say Indonesia? Yeah, or, yeah. She starts sort of just off on this re- weird random uh, sort of nineteen seventies style embracing other cultures without understanding them. Thing. Yes, and I think that's echoed in the score, which is like. Uh, uh, quite a brave choice that really works, which is this sort of Chinese score, this this plucky string mm. yep. score throughout the film, which really, really works. It sort of underlines this otherness of it. Yeah. And callback, Tobey Maguire narrating Fantastic Four much better than Tobey Maguire narrating Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yep. so much better. I'll pay yeah. that. And then Ride with the Devil in 99, which is an interesting one. I just saw it the first time the other day. It's not... 
it's didn't, look, didn't really respond to that one. Look, I think there's some great moments. I think there's certain set pieces and certain moments that are really striking. As a whole, I just don't think it hangs together. It's a hard film. It's like you get to the end of the film, like, what the fuck is this about? Like it's just kind of all over the place and things happen and and it all seems really kind of disconnected. Oh, it's the director's cut, which is the kind of the lauded version and. Yeah, it's just a bit kind of left adrift by the whole thing. But there are moments and uh, and portions of the film that really work. James Seamus writes a lot of a lot with him. Yeah, yeah, they've collaborated on nearly every single film. Yeah, so mm. who did he collaborate? Who wrote this one? That was Seamus. That was Seamus Adapted as well. from a novel. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes things just don't work. I, I, th- I think that's the thing, isn't it? With with so many projects, you put all the right people together. Yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't gel. The thing is, Seamus has worked on nearly every single Ang Lee film as either writer or producer or both. Tim Squire's edited every film but broke back. It's sort of hard to talk about specifically what Ang Lee brings to a film if we can't separate him from his collaborators. In this team, we should also mention past hyphenate subject Ted Hope was a huge part of this group as well. And mm. he and James Seamus were Good Machine, the production company behind all his early films. But, yeah, boy, did uh, Crouching Tiger break out. Like I say, I was very unfamiliar with, you know, I'd watched, you know, a Bruce Lee film every now and yeah, then, but yeah. I was never going to, I'm not into martial arts, I'm into that. And not that this is a martial arts film, but it, I have to say it's the first time I saw that kind of fighting. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sound like an old woman. Which is but called Wuxia. Is it? Yeah. I used to watch a lot of martial arts films on SBS and they'd either be the sort of Bruce Lee style, Jackie Chan style, and what made Crouching Tiger stand out so much for me was sort of the beauty of it, the, you know, that beautiful scene when they're on the treetops sort of passing each other, waiting for the trees to swing back so they can clash swords. And there's a real beauty to those scenes that I don't think Western audiences were used to. It was very much, like, Wuxia was a big thing in the 60s and 70s right. in, in, in China, right? like, it was in, in film, and it was very much hearkening back to that. Mm. and trying to bring that back, which he did, because after that we got things like Hero and House of Flying Daggers. Zhang Yimou really jumped on the bandwagon. I remember seeing it twice in the same week. I was so kind of lulled by the rhythm of it, and I was so surprised that there were two female leads who were fighting as well. Yeah. And not only do you have the physical aspect of it, but it's everything that we all love in good, big, deep, epic stories, be it Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever, where you have good and evil and you have honour. I like this film, but I have like I feel like it's it is gorgeous. It is brilliantly cast, and and I agree with you. I think there's some wonderful themes in there. I do find it a bit overlong and anticlimactic. I just can't. Mm. I I could. I remember I saw I just couldn't deal with that ending. I was like, no, no, that's not the. And you know, maybe that's the the message here. Maybe that's the you know sometimes dudes just get taken out by. <laughs> Little thing, arrow thing, tip, poison tip that bounces off the wall into your neck when you're the greatest warrior of all time. I'm still getting over that. I think it's similar to what Ang Lee did when he uh, did Hulk, because that was such a, a left field choice. I know it gets made fun of a lot, but I think it's an incredibly successful film. I really enjoy it, and I think the reason it works is how interested Ang Lee is in that character. I so got into the cartoon element, a comic strip element yeah, of trying yeah. to get into that. The panels. I still think there are bits for me that are just a bit too long. Yeah. Look, I think I think it's a pretty good film, and I think it's got one of the worst endings I've ever seen in a motion picture. <laughs> yes. The last ten minutes of that wow. film is ridiculous. Like, it's I like, thought I was watching a different film. Yeah. It was the fucking giant bubble. Like, what? What crazy? Make yeah, nonsensical, just nonsense. But exciting to see Eric Banner in a big role. I remember yeah. being quite excited by that. Yeah, Banner is Banner. 
But yeah, yeah like, oh. do you think, like, it was almost that shorthand, wasn't it? Well, this guy's named Banner. We might as well cast Barna him. Barna as Banner. Barna. I think Eric Barna as Banner. I, I, but I do, like, I'm, except for that last 10 minutes or so yeah. and, and Nick Nolte spitting at things, I do agree with you. I, like, I, I think most of the film is really good. Mm. I find that there's, it's interesting it's made for Universal because I think, and I think there's only two films in history that have nailed this weird dichotomy, and, and Ang Lee's Hulk is one of them. Because it feels, it's a Marvel comic story that feels like a Universal Monsters picture. Like Frankenstein? Yes. It feels like a tragic mm. Universal Monsters picture, like a Frankenstein or a Wolfman. Mm. And he treats Hulk like that, which I think is fascinating. The other film that fits that, that dichotomy, just for completeness sake, is Sam Raimi's Dark Man. But it's fascinating that Ang Lee treats Hulk that way. Mm. And that's one of the things I find most compelling about the film. So the first time I saw Brokeback Mountain, I hated it. Hang on, what? Yes, it's not something I'm incredibly proud of. There are other factors at work, but it's... I mean, I did love it the second time around. I went back and gave it another go and completely fell for it. And I think because so much of the emotion is there in the text, lines like, all we have is Brokeback Mountain, that if you're not in the right mood for that, it can seem a little too on point. But that said, I do love it. The second viewing completely won me over, and I've revisited it many times, and I think it's, it's a work of art. I remember seeing the trailer and going, this looks awful. This looks like cringeworthy Douglas Sirk on steroids. Like, all of the dialogue just seemed ridiculous. Like, I don't know how to quit, you! And I was like, this looks, like, hilariously bad. And then I heard all the good reviews, and it's like, all right, look, I'll go. I went, and it broke me in half. It's such a beautiful, sad... Mm, movie and with one of the best visual metaphors I've ever seen in the shirt thing it's such a lovely film and one of the greatest love stories ever made I don't think I'm talking out of school by saying that so 2005 Brokeback Mountain came out and I've only seen it once which was then and was really really moved by it and sort of find it I would I really wanted to watch it again for this but I actually haven't been able to watch a Heath Ledger film um, oh, wow. Since he died, and I'm not emotional about it. He wasn't my yeah. friend. Or just so sad. Just yeah. so sad about. It's like the Gandolfini thing. Yeah, um, but but you know, but Heath more. was so young. You yeah. know, I, I I felt so sad that we weren't going to see the incredible work that he was clearly going to keep on doing. And particularly like, as he was seriously peaking at that point. Oh, like, there was so there was special. just one brilliant performance after another. It was like Brightback Mountain and I'm Not There and The Dark Knight. But I just remember at the time. Spending quite a bit of time looking at the acting, mm. I was I, I really con- and then got lost in the story. But sort of being fascinated by Anne Hathaway being made to look older mm. later, and so entranced into a story of another outsider. Yeah, and maybe again, Ang Lee goes back to topics he likes, which is you know understanding what the outsider goes through. And really, it's always going to be difficult presenting a gay story to a mainly non-gay. Mm you know, audience and going, well, are we all going to believe that and go with it or whatever? And big leaps of courage from those two actors to do that film. It really was at the time. Yeah. And set in an incredible sort of environment, one that I, you know, I, I would say Ang Lee may not necessarily be familiar mm. with, but again, I did interview Nick Cave over Skype, so not interesting. <laughs> but I remember saying to him, oh, in the proposition, I remember thinking I'd never seen Australian light like that before. I thought you really captured the light that you can get in Australia, the harshness and the beauty of it. He said, that's because we had a French DOP. And sometimes an outsider sees the world in a different way and loves it in a way that we can't see it anymore or or captures it in a way that we can't see anymore. 
And I think he does that with this. I think they make decisions, him and his DOP make decisions that show how empty and how alone you can be. In, in all of that, and even with all that space, they couldn't be themselves. Mm. Like, again, a taboo love affair as well. Yeah, that's right. That yeah. In socially taboo love mm. affair in that environment and time. Mm. But yeah, it's another thing he keeps coming back to. And then in 2007, Lust Caution, which blew me away when I first saw it because I realised it's, I mean, it's a film about revolution and and one country invading another, but he uses the metaphor of invasion and makes it sexual. And it's a very strong idea, and it's so well executed. I yes. did not pick up on that, but now that you've said it, it's so obvious. <laughs> I, I found this was a film that kind of happened around me. I, I found that it was kind of... Again, I think most of Ang Lee's films are beautiful to look at, and it was kind of thematically interesting, and it was engaging, but I'd never at any point connected with it. Yeah, right. It just kept making me think, I wish it was a Wong Kar Wai film, which mm. is... Terrible to think while you're watching another person's film, but but yeah, it just made me think of how much more I like I respond to Wong Kar Wai stuff mm. um, than this particular film. See, I can't for the life of me work out how you go from Brokeback Mountain and Lust Caution to something like Taking Woodstock in 2009. I, I don't see how that happens. Not great. <laughs> I haven't seen this one. This is the one I haven't seen. Have you seen it, Julia? Yeah, I have. I have. What did you make of it? You want it to be as captivating as Almost Famous. Yeah. If you're going to be in that world of music and you want to be in that world of uh, you're recreating a time and a place and a feeling. And again, it doesn't all hang together. All I could obsess about was watching these people who obviously contemporary people, so it's people, act, extras from 2009, acting as if they're in the 70s. Oh, and I, okay. I, couldn't, I couldn't, I was going, no, you wouldn't do that, you wouldn't do that, oh, you wouldn't do that. Um, you know, because I think they're acting what they think the 70s are like, yeah. uh, w w that would have been like. But... um. Yeah, I just feel like wow. the film never quite manages, and of course they purposely don't show film or they try, try and recreate Woodstock. We don't see any of that. We just hear it. He does try to replicate the shooting style of the documentary. The split screens and stuff. Yeah, and, and at first you kind of go, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I, I didn't connect with anything it's, in that either. It's just every scene is so dramatically inert. It's like somebody sucked the energy out of it. And for a film that's two hours long... He doesn't make them short, does he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love slow films, I love long films, me but too, I do yeah, feel that he needs a tiny bit more discipline, and I think Taking Woodstock really embodies that. And so I actually think uh, Taking Woodstock is worse than Life of Pi. We, we debated Life of Pi a lot about a year ago, and Paul hated it, but I felt that Life of Pi could be saved through editing. I think there are a few scenes you could take out and you'd make it a brilliant film. I don't think Taking Woodstock can be saved in a similar way. I love that the fact that your comments about editing Life of Pi involve editing what Julia doesn't like about it and what I don't like about it. <laughs> the first half hour and the last half hour. And those are the bits I'd cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the adventure stuff's great. I mean, it's a bit schmaltzy, mm. but even though you're aware at all times that everything is computer generated, except the animals. The animals are unbelievably well done. But as far as the environments, yeah. you're kind of aware that this is all CGI. But there is a kind of a primal stuff that goes on with the adventure that's interesting. But, yeah, the wraparound stuff is just garbage. It's just God-bothering garbage. See, when, <gasps> the, when the film came out, I'd not read the book, and, you know, the book had been really huge, mm. and someone lent it to me, and then someone else lent it to me, and I could never start – I could never get into it, and I thought, oh. So when the film came out, I thought, oh, I should probably read the book before I see the film. And then I heard it was very CGI, and I thought, I hate that stuff. Yep. And I couldn't understand why Ang had made it and I thought, oh, but it's him, so I'd love to go. And, and so it, I, re, I just watched it for this. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So you didn't so see I'd the I'd never movies. seen it and I watched it for this and it was so funny. I kept putting off. I was going, oh, I've got to watch Life of Pi. <laughs> it's terrible. And I'm going, oh, I can't turn up to Hellfire's <laughs> 5 and it's fun. And um, so I went, okay, sit down, got popcorn, said, come on. Concentrate. How hard can it be? And hated that first half hour because it felt so truncated. Even though the actor is amazing and I think he's beautiful and 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 this the setup of and then we did this and then we came yeah. back and then we did this. So yeah, when you get to the guts of the story, that young actor is unbelievable. He's so yeah, he unbelievable. The whole thing, doesn't he? he carries that whole thing. But the fact that it's all CGI again for me, that's not filmmaking. You know, I'd yeah. rather watch a film from the seventies and the eighties before anything. And I, I just tell can't, it, sister. I can't <laughs> connect to it. Love I don't it. get it. And then I watch the extras at the end where they actually show you how they did it, and you go, "Yeah, all that stuff was pretend." So I spend ages going, "Is that a real tiger or not a real tiger?" Mm. In my eyes, it's his worst film. I haven't seen Taking wow. Woodstock. You'd go that far? Yeah. Oh, this is great. Why would you go that far? Because I just, I, I, I think it's all artifice and not in, a, not in an entertaining big Baz Luhrmann type way. Like it's trying to get you inv- involved in these primal sort of situations and you're just like, you're aware, like I said, you're aware Nothing of all times. It's computer. It, yeah. But there's, a lo- there's that, line, that climactic line towards the end that believe your own story. But which story would you rather believe? Oh, that's right, yeah. Which would you, uh, yeah. <laughs> which would you rather, yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah. would you rather believe? And it's like, all oh, right, so we're just going to believe the nicest, nicer God-bothering story because it's not as harsh or offensive as all the other stuff. And it's like, define why, why people are stupid. Mm. Thanks. And it just enraged me. I'm not that kind of guy that wants to come out of films wanting to punch them. Mm. This was a film, the rare kind of film that did that wow. to me. I, was, I had a really visceral reaction to it. I was like, fuck this movie. So, so, is the, so is the book better? Like, because I, I that, wouldn't bother. The notion of a story, the notion of an incredible story, yep. and no one can believe this story, therefore you make up a really ordinary story, although the ordinary story is not that ordinary. It's still sad or whatever. Yeah. I think there's, there's, a, there's a story in that. I think that's an interesting thing to explore. Definitely. You know, absolutely. But, but not why this is why no. people choose religion. Look, the book did have similar problems, but my, my problem with the book was actually the style of prose, which the film actually managed to fix just in the way it told the story. But I do want to say something too, because I know I may possibly have offended people with my God-bothering comments and things like that, but I, like, I actually think this is insulting to religious people. Mm. Like, like choosing it because it sounds like the better story. Mm. I think that's really insulting to people's faith. Like mm. It comes from a, a deeper, more important place than that, and spirituality is not that trivial. And Because mm. and like I'm, I'm basically an atheist. But I, I look at that and I think, I don't understand why more people of faith aren't offended by this. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's not Ang Lee's fault. I think Ang Lee's work on this film is pretty good. But I think the, the source material in particular is garbage. So last year I saw Sense and Sensibility for the first time. <gasps> really? Yeah, it was only about a year ago. Because we've been talking a lot about what are the themes of Ang Lee's films. You know, that, the idea of the outsider and so on. But when I was watching Sense and Sensibility, I was thinking, well, what connects this film to Hulk or connects Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to the Ice Storm. And I realised they're all about repression. It's what Sense and Sensibility is about. It's what Hulk's about. It's what the two leads in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon are experiencing. Brokeback's definitely about repression. Brokeback, exactly. Now, what is the one film that Ang Lee cameos in? Wedding Banquet. Wedding Banquet. And what's his line about? 
the repression. Lo- repression. They say, I didn't, the Americans who were at the wedding go, I thought the Chinese were supposed to be really meek. Yeah. He said, oh, something about, oh, it's been 5,000 years of repression. Yeah. You might be right. Oh, God, wow. All of his films were about people being repressed. And so, of course, he's going to make Hulk in 2003. It's, it's completely in line with the sorts of films he's been making. Well, I'd like to see him repress himself with budget this time. I'd like yeah. him to repress it. And next film he makes, I want him to go lo-fi again. Get away from CGI, get away from... Just go back to boring old 2D. I have to say, one thing that his films do do, though, make me bawl my eyes out. Yeah. And I do like a good cry, possibly in private. I probably won't be watching with anyone, but I really... And it's it's always the, the dad-kid-honour thing that always makes me go, Whoa, cry and cry, um, but I love it. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank oh, you. Thank you. It was such fun to prepare for this. I had such fun and loved talking about it, and I think I might go and watch Sense and Sensibility when I get home. Always <laughs> a good plan, and we'll see the rest of you next month. 100% pure adrenaline.